Amen. And Chris spoke and said, let there be light. Look at this. <laughs> Lord, we thank you and we worship you. We shout out to you this morning. You know, open our eyes and speak through all of us, especially me. I'm simply your instrument. Teach us your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take a seat. Give me about a half hour or so, then you can eat. I saw this this morning, I was like, okay, I'm never going to find these things, like the morning of sometimes, and like, this totally fits the sermon. Um, does anybody, or does everybody know, or at least heard of David Jeremiah? No. David Jeremiah, um, he's a, a well-known pastor. Uh, he, this was uh, part one of a series on the Christian Post. It says, David Jeremiah, this is the title, says, Apostasy Among Pastors a sign of great falling away ahead of end times. Now, David Jeremiah, if you've been following me, uh, know what a, a pre-tribulation dispensational, that, that, that's his background in terms of, I believe, in a rapture and stuff like that, and the difference between Israel is the church and Israel are separate. We're not you know, all in one, and that's what they believe. Anyways, he says here, I'm going to read portions of the article, Influential pastor David Jeremiah, and that's the word we use, by the way, today, influential. You know, influencers on social media, influential. You go back 10 years, it would have just said Pastor David Jeremiah. <laughs> Has voices concerns about the seemingly increasing number of pastors and churches strained from biblical truth, warning that this trend indicates the falling away scripture prophecies ahead of end times, which obviously we'll be talking about that this morning. Um, he cited examples of pastors renouncing their beliefs deconstructing or facing moral failures, we'll talk about deconstruction in a moment, that disqualify them from ministry, indicating a trend of spiritual decline. He says, we're in the modern day is a time of great discouragement and despair, believing that we're actually watching the disintegration of our nation right in front of us, and that it's happening not in a century, it's happening within a decade. And then he says this, is that law and order is gone, yeah. Truth is gone. Gender is gone. Yes. He says schools are dissipating. He has a school with his church that they had an enrollment before the pandemic, 1,200, and now they're pushing people away. They're already at 1,700. Uh, because and that's, that's not necessarily because these people are believers bringing their kids to school. They don't want them in the current school system. Uh, he lamented the reality that many churches have adopted a feel-good mentality instead of preaching the Word of God. And um, I made it very clear, if you're going to hire me, you're not going to feel good. <laughs> With the Word of God preach, you know, speak, and, and I'll feed you that way. Um, I'm not here to entertain, I'm here to feed you. Um, he says that to help ordinary believers discern the signs of unbiblical principles infiltrating churches, Jeremiah advised observing whether the Word of God is taught and valued. He encouraged churches encouraged finding churches where people carry Bibles and where Scripture is central to the teachings instead of motivational messages. So if you hear a church leader marginalizing the Scripture or saying something like, this was true, but then it's not true today, that's not the place you want to be. So you can go to a lot of Christian churches, he says, where they hardly ever mention the Bible, or if they do, they give you two little minutes of Scripture and they talk about what they want to talk about, and that's a real danger sign. They've been around even before I began in ministry, these types of churches. 
Jeremiah acknowledged the discouragement and despair prevalent in society and stressed the importance of, and this is radical, I warn you, studying your Bible, praying, and standing together as believers, i.e. fellowship. Sounds like an old idea, doesn't it? Okay, now, that's the beginning. I want you to get your Bibles out, and we're going to look at this passage right here. We'll finish up the signs this morning, and we are again, as I told you, right in this time frame, okay? And we're, but we're going to talk about events that happen here, okay? All right? Matthew 24, verses 9 through 14. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he'll be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Uh, Tim Adams is a pastor and elder at Sovereign Grace Community Church. Um, he listened to a podcast of an interview um, with then-pastor uh, Joshua Harris. Do we recognize that name, Joshua Harris? Not our little Joshua. It goes here. Okay. That's Josiah. Give me Josiah, yeah. Um, he was, this was an a interview with Josh Harris, this podcast he listened to, and in his article that Tim Adams wrote, this is what he, he said. It says, Josh came to prominence in the late 1990s and early 2000s. Um, he was all of 18 years old. I didn't know that. When he wrote or published the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. I was in campus ministry at that time, and it was even... Uh, very popular and influential within campus ministry. I wasn't for it um, because the book had a, uh, the purpose of the book was stop dating, just hang out as friends. But the downside of that was, and this was a, a problem even today, is that particularly with college students that we were working with, it was the men that were afraid of rejection, so they would try to enter into a relationship with a woman through a series of friendships. Their motives were something different. They really wanted to date this person. They just refused to make their heart known and, and take that step of faith because they were afraid of being rejected. And we dealt with that constantly. Anyways, the book was a clarion call to a generation to live their lives in sexual purity and abstinence. That's great. Uh, many credit him for launching what became known as the purity movement. He had the purity rings and the bands and stuff like that. The book became an instant bestseller and was used by many families and churches to guide their young people. In the process, young Josh became an instant evangelical celebrity. He was a headliner at conferences, a frequent guest speaker at churches throughout the country, and for many parents and youth pastors, a moral role model they propped up for their kids to follow. He would go on to pastor a large and influential church in Maryland, went on to publish several more books, but in 2015 he resigned his pastorate and moved from Maryland to Vancouver, British Columbia to attend Regent Seminary. And strangely for Josh, this was the first time he'd ever really been in a classroom because he'd been homeschooled his entire time he was growing up. 
His parents had been considered pioneers in the homeschooling movement. One of the reasons for his change of heart and the change in the direction of his life was him becoming aware of people being hurt by his book and the principles it espoused. Now, I believe that Josh also, I just know him as a pastor, he suffered stress and pressure from pastoring a church, especially if it's a mega church, which it was. That also puts a strain on marriage. But what pushed him over the edge was the pressure and the pain that he felt when there was a sexual abuse scandal in the fellowship of the churches that his church was aligned with, and that led him to leaving the ministry. Then in 2016, about a year later, via Twitter, he began posting some public apologies about his book, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, questioning the book and seeming to distance himself from it. In 2018, he publicly disavowed the book and requested that the publisher discontinue the publication, which the publisher did. And then the following year, in 2019, announced that he and his wife were separating, which eventually led to a divorce. Now, a few days later, after he announces he and his wife were separating, he announced he no longer identified as a Christian. His journey away from Christianity would ultimately culminate in becoming a secular humanist chaplain on a public university campus and an influential voice in what became known as the Deconstructing Faith Movement. Have you ever heard of that before? Anybody? A deconstruction is a, another word for apostasy. Okay? Turning away from following Jesus. Now, if there was any question as to the validity of Josh's apostasy, and let's just call it what it is, um, if there was any question about that, uh, eventually, uh, Mr. Harris offered a deconstruction class in Christianity for $275. Harris, a spiritual opportunist, is looking to profit off the faith by monetizing committing apostasy. So what happened to Josh Harris? He was raised in the church. His parents were homeschooling celebrities. He grew up in an evangelical celebrity culture. He grew up in the church, okay? By all appearances, even to himself, he seemed to be a Christian. The problem is, is Josh Harris built his faith on a foundation of movements. Homeschooling movement, uh, the charismatic church and worship experience movement, and the celebrity Christian culture. When put to the test, what happened to his foundation? It burned up and crumbled, which is what the text says here. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident as the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. Is gold, silver, and precious stones going to burn and turn to ashes? No. The purified, is wood, hay, and straw going to burn up and become ashes and be no more? It is. Now, as we finish our look at the signs of Christ's second coming, you're going to notice a shift in focus. Jesus turns away from addressing the world to now addressing his followers. And he wants us to know what to expect. 
It has been since his first coming, over 2,000 years ago, and will continue until he comes again, what Peter wrote. The judgment begins where? At the house of God. Notice what it says right there. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, the fourth sign is this. Persecution. Look at verse 9 of Matthew 24. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my names. Now the text here leads us to believe that this is going to be an outright, when I mean outright, I mean a very public, it will not be hidden, persecution. It will be worldwide persecution. And it will be a persecution of Christians that exceeds all other past persecutions. You know, he tells us, believe Jesus tells his followers what type of afflictions to expect. You're going to be what? Delivered up. That means you're going to be arrested. Because you identify with Jesus, the world, it says all nations in verse 9, you see that? They will hate you. And some will be murdered or killed for the faith. So in the end, Christians are going to be hated. See that? By all nations. They're going to be arrested, delivered up, and they're going to be killed. In fact, Mark 13, 9, the parallel verse to Matthew 24, 9, adds another dimension to this persecution. It says, but be on your guard. This is Mark 13, I just listened to this. For they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. So it appears that even the Jews will be persecuting followers of Jesus. And this worldwide persecution means that it will be difficult for believers to find refuge. Okay? Places to hide or escape by implication, will be hard to find. And that is why we read right before his coming, in uh, Mark 13, verse 27, it says this, Then and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds. Now, what are the four winds? The farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. In other words, he's going to have to, angels are going to go out and find believers, and they're going to be everywhere to the very ends because partly they're going to be hiding because of this persecution that's coming. Okay? The followers of Jesus will be hiding because of persecution. Now, the world hates Christians because they hate Christ, and because the Antichrist at this time is controlled by Satan, is in command. And this persecution, we believe, will be unprecedented. Again, there have always been hatred and murder of believers, Jesus, in fact, promised that as a cost of following him. But again, nothing on the scale of what we're looking at in these verses. Literally, it references from one end of the globe to the other. Now, how do we know this? Well, because if you look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, now just listen to this. And again, I will send out the sermon to you. It says, When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. 
And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. Now you see, the Apostle John is able to see into the future in the beginning of these birth pains we've been discussing. And what he sees is, is redeemed souls under the altar, and that's the key point. They're under the altar. They're covered by the blood. That means that they are, that's a symbol of atonement under the blood. They are believers, and they have been massacred during this tribulation. And they cry out for justice. And the justice they seek is the avenging of their blood by none other than God himself. But they're told to rest until those decreed to be martyred for their faith has been completed. You know what I call that? That is planned persecution, folks. You're planned and chosen to be saved, right? But there's some that are planned to, to die for the faith, to be persecuted. And watch this. It's for the purpose of storing up the wrath of God. And he's going to bring that wrath upon the godless nations. If you go to Revelation chapter 12, verses 13 and verses 17, you read this. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, the pers he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Verse 17. So the dragon, obviously who's the dragon? Satan, and probably the Antichrist in this instance, was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In chapter 13, verse 7, we read this in Revelation. It was also given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. In the verses I just read to you, the Antichrist makes war against the saints and overcomes them. The implication of other verses, he will kill them. Why? Because of their identification with Jesus. That's it. They'll have done nothing wrong. And they'll be persecuted. Their lives will be threatened, and some will lose their lives. In Revelation 16, we read of God's judgment on the nations for persecuting his children. His children are saints and prophets. Revelation 16 5 and 6. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you who are and who were, O holy one, because you judge these things. Now listen to this. For they poured out the blood of saints and prophets. And what, what does God do? You give them blood to drink. They deserve it. So what is happening? God knows it. It's planned. It's thrown up his wrath. And he's going to give it right back to the nations. They deserve it. Even the false religious system that's set up in Revelation chapter 17, it's represented by a great harlot. Now, what's the opposite of a pure, undefiled, white bride? A harlot, right? And the pure bride is, of course, who? The church. The opposite of that is going to be a harlot, and this is what Satan does. It, it reveals in this chapter 17 that this religious system has spilled the blood of the saints in the witnesses of Jesus. In verse 6 of chapter 17, And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. I mean, this is not true 
I mean, this happens all throughout the history, right? In the name of religion, even Christianity, there's been massacres of, of people, okay? But as a result of this intense worldwide persecution, we see another sign, apostasy. Verse 10 of Matthew 24. At that time, many will betray, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Now, I prefer the King James Version of this verse as it shows this. This is Matthew 24, 10. But this is the King James Version. Look what it says there, folks. You know what I'm going to say here. May will be what? Now, it says fall away in other versions, right? But we'll betray one another and we'll hate one another. Now, if you remember the Greek word for offend is what? Scandalon, right? It means to ensnare or to trap. People will become offended by some sin, whether it's a hurtful word, an action, or a circumstance beyond their control. In this case, it's going to be the persecution that's happening. And it causes them to sin. In this case, the pressure to sin is so great because of persecution at the end times, many will willfully turn away from following Jesus. And while in the trap of offense, we know this. People do the will of the devil. That's 2 Timothy 2.26. It says it very clearly there. You get caught in the trap of offense. You're ensnared in the trap of the devil. You end up doing the will of the devil. And this is exactly what the text says here. In this case, they commit the sin of apostasy. And what do they do? They betray Christians to their persecutors. You see, instead of the love for others that characterizes true believers, because what does love do? It always protects, right? These people are exposed as superficial unbelievers. Under the fiery crucible of persecution, what rises to the top of these people? It is hatred. Hatred is revealed as their defining characteristic. And those who hate always harm others, because hurt people do what? Hurt people, right? See, the price has become too great to continue to follow Jesus, so they fall away. They're offended. And Matthew describes them in this manner in chapter 13, verses 20 and 22. He says this, The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is a man who has heard the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. Again, falls away as he is offended. They don't remain. Now the question is of these people at the end times that we're talking about that fall away, that betray, that, that kill. Are they real believers? And the answer is no. Because if they were, they would have remained in the faith. I think I even put that up here. Yeah. They went out from us. I mean, they were in the church, but they left the church because they were not really of us. For if they'd been of us, I mean, true believers, they would have remained with us, but they went out so it would be shown that they all are not of us. The standard for following Jesus is clear. I, I've been over this. He, it's, it's, it's there, and we don't, I think, always recognize it when we read our Bibles, but it's there everywhere, really. 
particularly in the New Testament, in Matthew 10, 24 through 26, we read this. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he becomes like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of his house Beelzebul, which is what they said of Jesus, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore, do not fear them. How the teacher is treated, how Jesus was treated, is how the student should be treated. If they said Jesus was of Satan, they're going to try to say it about you. And the true disciple is not afraid of suffering like his master suffered. In fact, Jesus goes on in the same chapter in verses 32 and 33 of Matthew 10, and he says this, Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And he also said this in verse 38, And he who does not take his cross and follow me, follow after me, is not worthy of me. In other words, if you don't want the cross, that's another expression for suffering and even potentially dying for the sake of Christ, that person is not even worthy to be a disciple. And most certainly, that person never belonged to Christ because the one who belongs to Christ continues in Christ. The person who belongs to Christ is willing to pay the price. Because if he's a true believer, who lives within him? The Holy Spirit. And he has, gives him sustaining grace to suffer. His energy, his life is in you, and you're able to endure, to persevere. This is what the, basically the whole book of Hebrews was about. In Hebrews 3.12, it says this, Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. See, when somebody departs the living God, those people at the end that are claim to be believers, but they're not, they leave, it reveals an evil heart of unbelief. And so to summarize what Jesus is saying here is that during the time of tribulation, there are people in the church that identify outwardly to Christianity. They regularly attend worship, they tithe, they pray occasionally, they read their Bible from time to time, they serve at a committee, etc., etc., etc. But when the heat gets turned up, they bail. And they leave because they were offended by the persecution and the result was they were unwilling to pay the price to continue to be a disciple of Jesus. And what is so tragic about this is the redeemed saints are going to be betrayed by people in the church. Amen. And the people in the church are going to be offended, and they aren't willing to pay the price. So-called brothers and sisters in Christ are going to turn informer to true believers. And the true believers will be killed. But sadly, it doesn't even end in the church. As, as tragic as that is, it gets even worse. In Mark 13, 12, listen to this. Brother will betray brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. This betrayal, this persecution, and everything goes right into the family. As people under pressure of having to give their life to Christ bow out and then they turn on their relatives. Some will defect because of offense, because the price is too high, 
The pressure is too great. But there's another reason why some will abandon the faith. Look at verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and mislead many. So there will be deception. So the apostasy will be a twofold desertion at this point. Pressure from persecution and false prophets. And there will be many false prophets. Because people will be desperate to believe anybody with a prediction of a future hope, even when it is a lie. They will be successful praying on vulnerable people, and a mass of people will be misled. That's what this verse means, verse 11. And it would be, do well for us to remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 and 14. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as what? Apostles of Christ. And it makes sense. No wonder, he writes, for even Satan disguised himself as an angel of light. So when you add the false religious system described in Revelation 17, there will be all kinds of religious deception flourishing. And you want to be blown away? How about this? So those people who outwardly identify to Christ are going to break under the pressure of persecution and deception of false prophets. But the deception of the false prophets will be very effective. Many will be misled. And one more point in this is this. Drugs will be heavily involved. I did not know that until I researched this. In Revelation 9.21 it says, And they did not repent of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their immorality, nor of their thefts. The word sorcery, you never would have known this. So you'd study this. It's the word pharmakia from which we get the word pharmacy, and we go to pharmacy to get what? Drugs. And so there's a strong possibility that drugs will be a part of the religious deception as the masses of deceived people seek an escape from the horrible reality they are now faced with enduring. There's one more element of apostasy. First, there's offense. Under pressure from intense persecution, People refuse to pay the price of following Christ and turn away. Second, there's deception from the false prophets that mislead many. And now we read verse 12 of Matthew 24. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. You see, love bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. But when love grows cold because of sin, love no longer bears all things or believes all things, or hopes all things, or endures all things. The sheer amount of sin that is unleashed at this point in time in history, again, it says lawlessness has increased, it begins to take over. Soft hearts become hardened. Caring hearts become indifferent. Empathetic hearts become unfeeling. This will draw people away as they choose the delights of sin over love for Jesus. Now, we all know someone who had a love for Jesus, but because of some sin was led away and no longer continues in the faith. Let me go back to Joshua Harris. He turned away from following Jesus because of pressure. The demands of ministry, the difficulties of marriage, the unintended hurt his book caused, the pain of sexual abuse in his denomination, all that pressure revealed that the foundation he came from, the homeschool movement, the charismatic worship, the evangelical stardom, was ultimately never rooted in Jesus Christ. When the trials became too hard to bear, he walked away. But the pressure 
that will be brought to bear on believers just before Jesus' second coming will be far more intense than anything Josh Harris and others have had to face. I mean, we get offended at the slightest things, don't we? <laughs> Imagine what it's going to be like at that point in time. What will you do if you live throughout these last days? How will you handle the type of persecution Jesus is talking about? Hatred, betrayal, and maybe even death. The wickedness in the future will be far more powerful than anything we have known. In fact, Paul describes it as this. But realize that in the last days, difficult times will come. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. We're talking rampant global lawlessness that deadens hearts and makes love grow cold. And the result is people turn away from following Jesus. You all know what it's like when you have some sort of, everyone has, we all have sins that we struggle with, of secret sins, and when you give into that for a time, what happens to your heart? It gets hard and you know it. Fellowship with God becomes more difficult. You're less caring about people, more focused on self. Now, when you see all of this that's going on at this time, that doesn't include as well what we already talked about, the false Christs, the wars, the, 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 the pestilences, the famine, all that. I mean, who can then can be saved through all of this? And luckily we have an answer. Look at verse 13 in Matthew 24. The one who endures to the end. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. They don't defect because the price is too high. They're not going away because they're deceived. They're not persuaded to turn away from Jesus because they love evil. They'll be delivered out of this tribulation. Some will die, some will live. But they're all going to be delivered, whether in life or death, from the wrath to come to the glories of heaven that await. See, endurance is always the mark of the saved. In Matthew 24, Jesus is simply repeating what he already said in Matthew 10. Listen to this. Brother will betray brother to death, and the father is child, and a child will raise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You shall be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Amen. Now what a wonderful promise awaits those who endure whatever comes. Offense, betrayal, deception, lawlessness, and perhaps even death. No matter the price that person who endures will be saved. You see, the one who endures to the end wins. The faith that perseveres is the faith of the saved. Unless we forget, we see the rewards of those who endure the tribulation. Revelation 7, 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude. So there's many, many people, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, Standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in what? White robes and palm branches were in their hands. We also read in Revelation 19, 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, who is that? That's the believers, white and clean, 
We're following him on white horses. We will come with him, purified, dressed in white, as he comes again and establishes his rule. Now, the final sign of his coming, the final beginning birth pain, is what we call proclamation. Verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So there'll be a worldwide proclamation of the gospel. And I've always looked at this passage and I was taught this as well, and, and my, my guess is you have too. But this is the purpose of the church, this is what we do, and we need to get the gospel out to everybody so that this sign is meant and then Jesus Christ can come. And so we can kind of gauge how close we are to the end by the gospel going on. And we need to add technology to all of that, okay? And you think, you know, in the Billy Graham gospel presentations that's seen by millions around the world, What's interesting is that in spite of this intense persecution, despite the fact that there are defectors, there are false Christs, there are false prophets, there's cold love, you have hell belching out its demons all over the earth, we have an antichrist ruling and fighting against Christ, there's wars and famines and earthquakes, terrifying signs in heaven. In spite of all of that, what's going to happen? The gospel will be preached in all the world for witness to all nations. Now the question is, where are believers during this time? We're hiding, right? Think of the Jews during the Holocaust. They were alive, but they were limited, and most of them were hiding. But Revelation 14, 6 through 8 gives us our answer, how the gospel will be preached. And I saw another angel flying in mid-heaven, having an eternal gospel to preach to those who live on the earth, and to every nation and tribe and tongue and people, and he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and sea and springs of waters. And another angel, a second one, followed, saying, Fallen is Babylon the great, she who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Now, if the theologians are correct, this is just before the bold judgments of Revelation. You have the sealed judgments trumpet judgments and the bold judgments, the bold the last judgments so were getting close to the end. So before these are poured out, before the final rapid birth pains begin in the kingdom, right towards the end, just before the final holocaust begins to break loose, the gospel is preached to everybody, every nation, tribe, and tongue, and people by an angel. This is a fulfillment of Matthew 24, 14. This specific preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the whole world isn't talking about preaching of the gospel that's going on now. What we're talking about is a supernatural, miraculous, final evangelization of the world by an angel that happens right before the final judgment. This is why the angel says, fear God and give him glory. And this angel that falls says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. Why does this angel say that? Because man's day is over. It's done. And you better get right with God. This is the great evangelistic effort carried on by glorious angels in the heavens flying all over the globe just before the final Holocaust breaks loose. And the eternal gospel that they preach is the same gospel that was given us. It's a call to the world to the Savior. And when this happens, 
the end will come, but not before that. I know somebody's thinking, okay, how do we know when these birth pains start? Well, that's going to be our study of verses 15 through 28, okay? And we'll pick that up in a month. I'll be gone the next three weeks, okay? We have uh, Dustin Olson is a missionary. We'll be speaking next week, and then we have two guest speakers. Um, But until then, this is what I want you to do. This is the final application point for the signs. Okay, everyone get your Bibles out turn to Luke 18. We'll close with this. Luke 18. This is Jesus talking about what to do when he comes again, particularly before he comes again. Luke 18, verses 1 through 8. And he's just been talking about the end times here in chapter 17. He says, Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city, There was a judge who did not fear God, did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now, will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? And will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. What kind of justice are we talking about? Well, here it is. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So he's talking about a second coming. The faith he's talking about is people, his people, that are continually doing what? Praying. And what are we praying for? Justice, and justice will come in the form of his second coming. So what do we do? Well, we need to you know, know the signs right, be aware of them and know them, and then we need to be praying in light of knowing these signs that he will come again. And that's the application point. Pray. Pray that he comes again. Because that's what he's looking for, right? He wants to find faith on earth of people praying, praying for his justice, and that justice will only come at his second coming. Those are the signs. Now, I'll give this to you. I forgot to write this down, put this on the, on the PowerPoint. If you want to remember all the signs, for, you want to write this down? First one, deception. That's the false prophets. Let me see if I remember all. There, there, there are six Ds. The second one is dissension. That's the wars. Declaration, dissension, famines, that's devastation. Remember we went there last week? All that's going to happen there. Okay. And what was the fourth sign we talked about today? It's, we'll call it, it's, um, oh my gosh, it's not deconstruction. It's called, when you treat something, desecration. You treat something holy, it's holy in an unholy way. Okay. Then defection, that's apostasy. And then the last sign is declaration. The gospel goes out. If those six D's help you remember those signs, someone want to read them to me? Louder, I can't hear you. What? Deception? 
dissension, devastation, desecration, defection, declaration. If that helps you remember those signs all in one letter, then I've done my part. And what's your part? Pray. Pray as he comes again. Amen?